0: Father, we love you and we are so grateful uh, that we have this assurance that you sit on your throne, you are king of kings, you are Lord of all. And Father, in that safety, and that assurance, we come before you knowing that we can trust in you, we can trust in your plan, we can trust in all that you have in store for us, even when things seem unsure. And so we pray that in that assurance this morning, we would find comfort, we would find uh, an undeniable sense of your presence, of your glory, God, that you would use our lives and our trust in you to bring your fame and your renown to this earth. And so, Father, speak to us through your holy word, through the time together that we share in song and prayer, the teaching of the scriptures, God, stir us, shape us, mold us, refine us. Holy Spirit, come. Come and dwell within your people. Fill this room as only you can. And help us to once again fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you all. You can be seated. <clears throat> thank you to the worship team for leading us as always. Uh, thank you for Caroline for getting us a t shirt day today. I always enjoy t shirt days. Uh, we over me, right? We is better than me. And so. Uh, when you see these shirts scattered around after our service today, and we're getting a chance to get some hot chocolate, even though Texas has decided to bring a 70-degree weather, um, all of a sudden, enjoy the conversation and ask about community in the ways that you can plug into community today. Hey, we're going to get right to it and, and continue through the beginning part of this series that we have titled, uh, Finding Your Safest Relationship. And so we started this just a few weeks ago and the whole premise of this series is that when we uh, take a journey through the psalms, we will each week take a look at a different genre of psalm, a different type of psalm, and in so doing, discover that the psalmist brings every different sort of emotion, all these different circumstances and situations to the Lord through prayer and through worship. And when we see that wide variety of emotions and expressions, we can learn from that and see that we can follow that same example. that there's really no emotion or circumstance or situation that we encounter in our own life that we can't safely bring to the Lord. And and that's really a remarkable gift because when we think about the relationships that we have in our life, uh, we would have to probably all acknowledge that each one of them comes with inherent risk, right? That no matter who we find in this life, no matter how close we may feel to them, there's probably gonna be something in the back of our mind that either consciously or subconsciously we say, can I really Share everything that I am with this person. Can I really confide my deepest fear, that this, this level of grief, this impure thought, whatever it may be? And we have this inherent risk, and because of that risk, we tend to stay guarded, and we wonder just how safe it really is. So when we discover that God truly can take everything that we are, every thought, every fear, every concern, every joy, every opportunity, and we can bring it to him, and we discover that he truly is the safest relationship in our life, that should drastically influence how we approach God in prayer and in worship. And that's the goal of the series, right? That we find the safety in God, and it really begins to inform how we approach God in prayer and through worship. And so last week was the first time that we had a chance to really look at the first genre, or first different category of the psalm. We looked at an entrance liturgy which was the type of Psalm that the, the Israelites would often refer to when they were entering into the temple courts for worship or into a season of worship. And, and so by looking at Psalm 24, uh, we kind of asked this governing question, how do you ready yourself for worship? Like how do you prepare your heart for prayer? How do you prepare your heart for worship? And Psalm 24 allowed us to kind of look at two different things. One was our expectations of God, right? We can prepare ourselves appropriately by really understanding who God is. And by looking through Psalm 24, both at the beginning and the end, we see a couple of things, right? We, we see that, that, that God has made all things, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And he is the God that brings order out of chaos. And so recognizing that sovereignty, recognizing that sort of provision, that he is the Lord strong and mighty in battle, when we have a clear understanding of who he is, it influences how we ready ourselves for him. But similarly, in Psalm 24, we also talked about it's not just our expectations and understanding of God, but his expectations and understanding of us. That when we approach God, we should do so in a spirit of confession and repentance because he desires clean hands and a pure heart. We need to set aside our idols. We need, we need to come seeking him in a sincerity of truth, not swearing by that which is false. We need to seek his face more than anything else. Our pursuit of him has to be integral to our lives. Right? And, and if we can demonstrate that, we are able to demonstrate the importance of that relationship in our life. This is how we ready ourselves for the Lord. This is how we ready ourselves for prayer and for worship. So that's what we went through last week. Today, we move into a different genre, different type of psalm. It's going to be a royal psalm, a psalm about kings. But before I get into that, I actually want to take just a few minutes and tell you a little bit about what we're going to be doing next week. Okay, Uh, Next week is February 11th, and it is going to uh, mark somewhat of the beginning of the Lenten season for our church. Now, the season of Lent is the the season that leads us into Easter. Uh, It's the 40 days kind of uh, leading up into Easter, and technically it starts on Wednesday, February 14th. That's what is referred to as Ash Wednesday. Customarily, our church doesn't really do an Ash Wednesday service. Uh, We talked about doing it this year, and then we saw that it fell on Valentine's Day, and we're like, nope, not going to do that this year. Um, and so February 11th, next Sunday, though it's technically not the beginning of Lent, we're going to use that service as kind of the introduction to Lent for our church. And, and it's going to be a different type of service. Uh, we are actually going to make it one of those prayer services that we've done in the past. If you've been with us for the past year or so, you, you've been a part of these, uh, we do them usually to start Lent and to start Advent, two of the biggest parts of the church calendar. And we see these prayer services as a is a great way to prepare our hearts for these significant stretches of both the incarnation of Christ at Christmas and then obviously the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ at Easter. And so we're gonna start the Lenten season with this prayer service. If you haven't been a part of them, They are honestly some of my favorite services that we do. They're so meaningful, they're so intentional with how we try to come together in worship and in prayer and obviously some reflection on Scripture. So we're gonna do that next week, but one of the reasons I wanted to offer this as a disclaimer is because when you think about the season of Lent, it really is a way for us to prepare our hearts for the way that Jesus stepped into suffering. Lent tends to come with a certain solemn reflective and introspective sort of spirit and feel. And so we're going to use next Sunday as a way to not just introduce Lent, but also introduce what is one of the most common genres of psalms, which are psalms of lament. Uh, lament means to be sorrowful, and, and it is one of the most common psalms that we have, and so our prayer service next week is going to be a prayer service of Lament. And that's gonna be a little bit different. It's gonna have a little bit of a different tone and feeling to it. And, and we kinda of wanted to give you a heads up in that regard so that you could prepare yourself accordingly. And, and one of the reasons we felt like that was necessary is because a lot of times, we don't really know how to take our sorrow, take the things in this world and our life that need to be lamented, and make them a part of prayer and worship. And yet they are essential, right? Th- those are natural parts of our life and they are, they are Absolutely essential parts of prayer and worship. When you look and see that the majority of psalms are psalms of lament, you see that there's an entire book of lamentations. We have to learn how do I take this sorrow, how do I take this lament, and make it purposeful in my relationship with the Lord. See, a lot of times we we just try to stay with happiness and joy. Uh, if you've seen the Pixar movie Inside Out. I think it's a great illustration of how we often approach life and especially church, right? It's the story of this young girl, and it takes us on the inside of her thinking and these five different emotions that govern her thought, those emotions being either joy, sadness, anger, fear, or disgust. And at any point, one of them could take the wheel, and you see how it impacts her reaction to the world around her. But the overall message of the movie is that they want joy to always run the show. They always want joy behind the wheel, and they are constantly trying to keep sadness away, but the overall message of the movie is that once sadness actually took over, it actually was very healing. It was actually very therapeutic. It was necessary. And I think that's what we often do in our lives, and especially in church. We're kind of like, let's keep sorrow, let's keep sadness somewhere else. Let's just let joy run the show. But the reality is, is that if we can learn how to faithfully and and biblically lament, we find this incredible comfort in in a whole new component of experiencing Christ. And so it's necessary, it's important. Uh, And so a way that you can prepare for that next week is that we're gonna use Psalm 13 as our guide uh, for the service next week. So spend some time over the next few days just looking at it, reflecting, praying about it. uh, Take some time to recognize maybe areas of your life or around the world where lament might be necessary and come in ready for that. Now, our goal next week is not just to have the most depressing service you've ever been a part of, right? That's not what you need to expect. But we do want you to come in with a certain different frame of mind and and for us to find the comfort of Christ, even in our sorrow. Okay, so that's where we're headed. Uh, We'll have Little's Church be uh, really kind of through the whole service next week so that we can just help them be in that place. But for the rest of us, I really look forward to sharing that journey with you uh, next Sunday. So that being said, let's get to this week's message in the Royal Psalm. We already read it, Psalm 2. And this is a psalm uh, that is falling under this category of a royal psalm, which typically is a category that is attributed to any psalm that speaks about a king. Uh, there were psalms that were written specific to kings that were being established on uh, over the, the kingdom of Israel. And they were often used in relation to these particular kings at different points in history. And so one of the questions that people often ask is that, if well, if these psalms were written about specific kings, why do we still look at them? Like, why did they make their way into Scripture? Because these kings don't live anymore, they don't exist anymore, why, why are we still studying them and using them? How did they become a part of Israel's liturgy? And there are really kind of two reasons for that. The first is that most of the psalms that were written as royal psalms were often using very generic language. And so though they may have been written about a specific king and, and that king's reign, the language within the psalm was often very general, and therefore it was able to be applied to different kings in the future. But the real reason that, that it became such an integral part of their liturgy was not just that it had generic language, but that these royal psalms were able to be used in different moments of Israel's history and in different ways. So, for example, Psalm 2 is believed to be a, a coronation psalm for King David, right? When David was officially established on his throne in the coronation ceremony, they believe this psalm was, was kind of calling that to mind or used during that moment. And so when you read through Psalm two and you kind of look at that and you see that middle section where it says, The Lord's anointed has been installed on my holy hill, they were talking about King David, right? And so they would look at Psalm two with this kind of this pride, this emotion, and they would think of King David and they'd be like, This is my king, right? God has established him on his throne, he has brought peace to our kingdom. And it spoke to where they were at that point in season of their history. But then if you keep reading the story of Israel, and you get to First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and you begin to discover that the successors that followed David, a lot of them, the refrain that you see in the Scriptures is, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And the story of these kings becomes stories of corruption, stories of idolatry. And so folks would read Psalm 2, And they would see these corrupt kings, these kings doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they would think, this is not my king, but I'm looking for the Lord's anointed. I'm ready for the next one to assume this throne, to be the Lord's anointed and do what the Father desires. And so, be it during the reign of David or the pre-exile, it was either this is my king, this is not my king, and then you get to the exile and post-exile. Right, You get to generations that now, though they know David, they've heard of David, they don't, they don't remember his reign, they don't remember that time period, they weren't alive during it. And so now these royal psalms begin to, to have a new sentiment where they start asking, where is this king? And that's the era that begins to give these royal psalms this messianic feel and quality to them, where all of a sudden the people would look to these royal psalms, like Psalm 2, and began looking for this Messiah, this king that would come and be the Lord's anointed and do all these things that the psalmist has just described. And so regardless of the era, these royal psalms had some form of applicable qualities to the people of Israel. And I would say they really apply to us as well. Right? like That same mindset is attributed to our context and our situation today also. Right? You, you think about the way that we look at leaders and we look at politicians and we look at nations and governance and all these different things. There are times where we go, yeah, man, this is my king. I'm excited about what this person brings. And then there are times where whoever we wanted to be in the Oval Office or whatever, that, that's not there. And so now we're like, this is not my king. I'm looking for someone else. And we constantly have these emotions about these people that are in power. But really what we should all be doing is kind of that third place where we're looking for where where is this king? Where is this Messiah? Where is the Lord's anointed? And obviously that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so Psalm 2 leads us down this path in a very constructive and meaningful way. And and so as we've already read through it, there are really four parts that I want to call your attention to. The first part is, is through the first three verses. And so if you want to look back, if you have your Bibles in front of you, Uh, one of the things that you see in this opening part that's kind of a theme is the theme of the nations. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. So again, during the time of David, what's happening here is they're sitting there and they're looking out in their current context, and they think about Assyria, they think about Babylon, they think about any opposing enemies, and they go, look at these guys, why are they conspiring? Why are they plotting? This is all in vain. We, we've got the Lord's anointed. We've got David. And, and these enemies, they're, they're gonna fail against David. Right, that's, that's how they're looking at it. And so when you look at the first part, one of the coolest things about Psalm two is you know what we have here with Psalm two? What we have with Psalm 2 is something that gives us a strong theological framework for understanding and interpreting the world's events. Can I say that again? Psalm 2 provides a strong theological framework for us to understand and interpret world events. So when you and I read this opening part, and we see references to the nations conspiring, and the kings of the earth banding together, the peoples plotting, can you think of any current day examples? The answer is an unequivocal yes. Right? All over the place. We see this unfold. We, we see reports of, of China and Taiwan, Russia and Ukraine, Israel and Palestine. Right? It, the, the list is endless sometimes, it feels. And so how do we make sense of that? What, what theological framework do we implement to understand the nations, <clears throat> excuse me, the nations conspiring and the kings of the earth banding together? <clears throat> a couple of things that we learn, even just in this opening section. The the first thing that is so critical to establish, if we're gonna really understand Psalm 2 well today, is to remember, hear me, remember that the psalmist that wrote this was not a US citizen. So the Lord's anointed is not the United States of America. So you can't read it with fingers pointed outward. Look at all these nations and how they plot. Right? You, you got to, yes, consider global events, but look inward. That, that's us. Okay, that, we are not the Lord's anointed, and so we are part of the nations that conspire, the peoples that plot, in vain. You cannot read this psalm with an ethnocentric mindset that says that we are the chosen ones, right? We have to come forward with a certain humility that understands this applies to us as well. It's an important theological framework. And so what you see here is that the aspiration of the nations, the aspiration of these kings coming together and and plotting together is really a pursuit of power, Right, you see that in verse 3, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. This is what the other nations want. They want freedom, they want power, they want autonomy, they want rule. And, and you can take any situation and any circumstance that we see globally and the, the conspiring temptations of the nations, and is that not at its core a pursuit of power? right, a pursuit of safety, freedom, however you want to describe it. This is the, the motive of so many nations and kings of the earth. And what the psalmist is trying to say is that if that's the motive, if that's the direction, it is inevitably going to butt up against the rule in the reign of Christ, the rule in the reign of the Lord's anointed, right, the rule in the reign of the one who has made the earth and everything in it. And so your pursuit of power is going to come against the rule and reign of God. Therefore, this pursuit of power is in vain. That's, That's what the psalmist establishes in this first section and gives us a pretty important recipe here for this framework, that when we see the nations conspire, be it our own or those abroad, you and I can recognize that it is an attempt of futility. It's vanity. It's pointless. Now, let me clarify that. That's not to say that you're to make light of it, (laughs) right? The conspiring of the nations obviously can create turbulent times, real and intangible danger and oppression and corruption that should not be cast aside or, or dismissed. It should be taken seriously. So the vanity that we are talking about here is to recognize that though the nations may pursue that sort of power and though those dangers may emerge, they ultimately will not prevail. None of them overcomes the rule and the reign of the Lord's anointed. None of them. It, it is an attempt of futility. And so the application for us is that, number one, you shouldn't be surprised when you see the nations conspire. Number two, you don't need to be worried. You don't need to be worried. And the second part gives greater reasoning as to why we don't need to worry. The psalmist takes our attention towards the throne room. Verses 4, 5, and 6. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. You can see it as vanity because the Lord himself looks upon the conspiring aspirations of the nations, and he laughs, he scoffs, he mocks is what it says. If God is not worried about it, then we don't need to be worried about it. God is not sitting up in heaven worried that his rule and his reign is going to be threatened. He knows it's secure. He knows it's firmly established. And so you and I can have that same assurance He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I think it's important for us to look at these sorts of verses and remind ourselves that our God does get angry. A lot of times we want to extract certain scriptures and just create a nice little teddy bear in the sky, right? Santa in heaven. And, And that's the God that we want. He gets angry. Now, a couple of weeks ago, when we're studying Psalm 103, we see the psalmist evoke that that important part of of the Lord declaring his name in front of Moses, right? He hides Moses in the cleft of the rock, and then he walks in front of him, and he declares his name, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. So he is slow to anger, and aren't aren't we glad? He is compassionate. He is gracious. He is abounding in love. He is slow to anger, but he does get angry. And so when we look at the nations, the conspiring attempts of the nations, be it our own or abroad, and we get frustrated with the injustices, the atrocities, the oppression, the loss of innocent life, the evil that can often be associated with these sorts of decisions and moves, understand, your God does not like it. He is not just passively letting it happen. It angers him. It is a reminder that he is a God of justice. And aren't we glad He is a God of justice, and he will demonstrate his wrath. Now, the question that you and I have to ask is, how will he do that? And it tells us, by installing the Lord's anointed on my holy mountain. So, for again, during the coronation of King David, this is David, right? God's answer at this point in time is an earthly answer. I'm giving David a certain authority. He's going to have victory over some of these nations, and that is part of how I'm going to demonstrate a certain level of rebuke for their idolatry or whatever it is that they might be doing. So sometimes we see that play itself out in an earthly setting, right? But, but ultimately, what we see is that God is directing our focus to say that the way in which this is going to be dealt with is by him establishing his king, not yours, Right, A lot of times when we see global events and we need this theological framework to know how to understand and interpret and, and respond to it, we can't help but kind of get charged up and motivated and determine who we want to be king to solve it all. And God has given us a great reminder here, I, I'm not looking for your king, I'm going to give you mine. It's going to be the Lord's anointed that speaks into this. And so we, we have to keep that in mind as we start figuring out how do I respond These events. That's not to say that you shouldn't have thoughts and feelings about foreign policy and domestic policy and everything that goes with it, but understand where your hope lies. Right? Understand what the Lord's answer is. It's in His anointed, not ours. And so then you move into the third section where we get uh, the decree of the Lord. The psalmist says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possessions. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. So what you see here in this third section is that uh, when a king was anointed, literally anointed with oil to to signify his new rule and reign over Israel, that was the moment that you really felt like the Lord had anointed this person to serve and rule over Israel, and this father-son language began to be utilized. And so the anointing of the king puts them on the throne. Father-son language is utilized so that the king is really there to represent the Father's wishes. So it's, it's, it's an affirmation that the Lord is the one that still reigns, that it it's still God in heaven who reigns. This king that is being anointed in Jerusalem on his holy hill is, is like a son who is there to carry out his father's wishes. So notice that God is still trying to establish that though I'm giving you a king, your ultimate worship is with me. And so David is saying, listen, I've been chosen. I, I'm like his son. I'm going to carry out his wishes, and and part of what he's going to grant Israel and grant me is essentially these nations are gonna become my inheritance, right? That that the kingdom uh, of Jerusalem, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of God is going to extend to the ends of the earth, right? Peace all around. And we can see that that peace is going to come with the rule of this iron rod, a scepter. Uh, We see language uh, that is associated with force, Language that is associated with discipline and judgment. Right? And so again, sometimes God brings that that force, that discipline and judgment in an earthly context. But what you and I can obviously apply here on the other side of the cross and the other side of the resurrection is that when Jesus steps into this identity of being the Lord's anointed, right, that we understand that the reign of Christ will know no end. It extends to the ends of the earth, but that Jesus will absolutely come with a demonstration of judgment and discipline. Right? Is he a God of grace? Does he give us mercy? Does he give forgiveness? Yes, but he also comes with judgment and discipline. Right? That that is going to be an inevitable part of how he establishes his rule and his reign and his authority. And so you and I can again recognize that that role, that responsibility is the Lord's, not mine. And I can trust that he will bring it and he will allow it to take place. And so we see this hope being fully established in who the Lord will anoint, that he will carry out his father's wishes, that it will extend to the ends of the earth and it will also come with the fair discipline and judgment that comes through his king. Which leads us to the fourth and final section. Therefore you kings, be wise. Be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. So the psalmist ends this, uh, this word, this prayer, with a word of warning to the nations and the kings of the earth, which is another demonstration that though our God gets angry, he is still patient. He is still allowing them to be warned, to assess their situation, and to choose a wise path. And so you and I can look at these final lines and, and understand the value of uh, the warning that, that uh, those in power, the nations, the leaders should take to consideration, and learn from these final lines what a wise king, what a wise ruler looks like, and how that can inform our thoughts of what we would hope for and desire for our nation and other nations around the world. Look at how they're described. Be warned, you rulers of the earth, serve the Lord. There's the first one. It means work for the Lord. Right Now, it's unrealistic for us just to expect every nation's leader to be a God-fearing Southern Baptist from Texas, as amazing as that might be. Um, That's unrealistic, obviously, right? And problematic on so many levels. Um, But, y'all, we'd have way too many committees. It would be awful. Um, But the point is, is that you can still Have them serve the Lord, that heart of servanthood that we talked about with these kids today, right? That sort of posture and disposition. And not just a work oriented towards the Lord, but how? Serve the Lord with fear, right? That that our leaders would have a reverence for God, a certain humility, right? A, A certain understanding that it's not to lead with arrogance and intimidation, Right, but, but with fear and with trembling, the next line, celebrate the Lord's reign with trembling. Right, there's a humility that takes place there. There's an understanding of what power has been entrusted to them is one that is to be stewarded well, not abused. Right, that they would serve the Lord with reverence, they would serve the Lord with humility. That's the sign of a wise king. Kiss his son, that's a phrase that speaks to showing honor and respect. Right? Do, do our leaders demonstrate something that is honorable, something that is respectful, that they show honor and give respect to others and not just demand it for themselves? Right? And that that honor and respect is not just how they treat other people, but how they see the Lord, how they see Christ. And again, these become very difficult expectations, but I'm just trying to paint for you the picture of the wise king, according to the psalmist, the wise leader, If we don't find someone that leads this way, here's the warning. If you don't live this way, God will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. When we follow or put our hope in kings that are unwise, no matter how good it may or may not make us feel, because it's our party that wins or it's not our party that wins, however you interpret it, understand that if they can't demonstrate wise qualities, that path is ultimately gonna lead to its destruction, right? If if it is contrary to the Lord, understand that, that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, he reigns over all, and so it will ultimately butt up against him, and so our hope should never be in an unwise king, period. And so recognize the way that path leads because though our God is slow to anger, his anger can flare up, in a moment. And so the wise king does what? That last line. The wise king takes refuge in him. That's what the wise king does. Blessed is he who takes refuge in him. So when you think about the psalmist, you think about uh, this theological framework that's being unpacked for us. I, I feel like it's important. I mean, we're at the very beginning of an election year. But it, it gives us a good start, doesn't it? how we should understand global events, discussions here at home, right? And and the way in which we should respond and how we should respond. And that's really how I want to close this today. I want to bring this into some word of application for us and how we take this, this framework that exists here and how we can apply it to our own lives, right? That we would be cautious enough to not be those people that when we look out in our world today, in our nation, that we wouldn't become just so known for the people like, this is my king, and that our identity is more associated with some political ideology than it is our faith. Right, and that we also wouldn't be so hopeless and antagonistic and angry and bitter, being like, well, that's not my king, and just always make it about the people that we don't like or that we don't agree with, but that we would be those people of hope that would understand that God has ultimately brought the fulfillment of Psalm 2 through the person of Jesus Christ. Right, this psalm became one of the most messianic psalms in all of the Old Testament. In fact, it's believed to be, if I'm not mistaken, one of the most quoted psalms in all of the New Testament. Because when the early church finally came together after all of these years and generations of longing for where is this king, they found it in Jesus. So you and I, we can look back at the early church, see how they understood this theological framework of Psalm 2, how they saw it fulfilled in Christ, and therefore find a template for our lives and how we can respond today as well. And so here's what I would say as we prepare to consider that. Um, when I think about the world events today and I, and I see these things unfolding, um, I'll be the first to admit that it worries me. If that tends to be my response, that I'll, I'll turn on the news, I don't really turn on the news, I'll scroll through Twitter or whatever it is, and, and I'll see the new headline, the, the latest update, and, and, and you just see all these things happening, and I, I get worried. And I start thinking about all these what-if scenarios. I start thinking like, okay, so what, what if China invades to Taiwan? Like, what, what happens if that unfolds? What, what is gonna happen with Russia and Ukraine? How, how are we going to respond to these soldiers that were just killed in Jordan? And our response, will it escalate things in the Middle East? What's taking place with with Israel and Palestine? And all these things, I'll be the first to admit, I can get pretty worried. And then I'll look at home, and I'll look within our own country, and I'll see the growing polarization and the hostility that exists between Republicans and Democrats, Trump and Biden and all these different congressional leaders and the way in which we have just seemed to lost the way to have civil discord, right? And that now the the animosity and the hostility feels so um, palpable and there seems to be this greater acceptance that violence is a way to treat those you disagree with. Like, I worry. I worry about what an election year can do and where it might lead our country in the trajectory we we are on. I worry about it. And so what do you do with those moments where you look out and you see the nations conspiring? How does Psalm 2 give you a framework when you start thinking about all these potential threats that could impact our life? Well, if you think about the early church, there's this beautiful moment in Acts chapter 4 that gives us, I think, such a beautiful picture. Right, so in this part of the early church's history, it's really on the forefront of it. And, and Peter and John have been brought into the Sanhedrin. And they've been questioned because they went and did a healing. They've been performing miracles. They've been preaching the good news of all these different things. And so their leaders, the teachers of the law, the elders, they are not happy. Right? They, they see this as a threat to their authority. They see this as a threat to stability and all these different things. And so they're hesitant at this point to do any, any real persecution towards Peter and John. Because they know that that the crowds right now, like, it's not the right time to do that. And so, what they do is they intimidate them and they bring all these different threats, which, what we know later, ultimately results in imprisonment, flogging, persecution, and in many cases, death. Right? So, this isn't just like, hey, here's a storm warning slap on the wrist. This is like, you need to feel incredibly afraid and terrified of what we can do to you. All right? And so, it's in the middle of those threats, it's in the middle of that sort of concern, that we can turn in Acts chapter 4 and see how the early church responds and uses Psalm 2 as a way for them to know how to respond to their current situation, and I think give us a model for ours today. Chapter 4, starting in verse 33, says, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raise their voices together in prayer to God. That's our response. You get worried. You get upset. You get concerned about the nations conspiring and what's going to be taking place abroad or at home. Our answer is not to protest. Our answer is not necessarily to go out and put our hope in legislation or some political leader or some candidate. Our response is to gather together and pray to God. That's our theological framework for what we do when things begin to unfold around us. And listen to how they pray. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Does that sound familiar, church? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. They recognize his sovereignty You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Here's Psalm 2. They're now going to quote and interpret Psalm 2 for us. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. That's Psalm 2. And now here's their interpretation as they apply it to Jesus. Indeed, Herod, Pontius Pilate, met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. So there's a very clear interpretation. You want to know who the the Lord's anointed is? You you want to know who God has established on his hill in Zion? You want to know who's going to bring judgment and rule and peace to all these different things, who the nations are going to be given as an inheritance? It is Jesus Christ, Lord of all. And the reason that has been established and interpreted by the the disciples is not because Jesus had some sort of great political campaign or some great sort of strategy or some sort of legislation. It's because he gave his life on the cross and defeated the powers of death and was given the name that should be above all names that he is king of kings and lord of lords. He's the one that God has anointed. And they see it and they trust it and they believe it and they declare that authority and listen to how they continue. So now, Lord, consider their threats. Consider the threats that these people in power have just offered towards John, that have just offered towards Peter, that we are hearing are a reality for us, all these bad things that might happen. Consider what may happen. And Lotus, are they praying for safety? Are they praying for these people in power to be done away with? What do they pray for? Here's what they pray for. Consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. That's how we respond. That we would be found faithful to speak the word of God with boldness. And that boldness just means confidence. It doesn't mean animosity. It doesn't mean argumentative. It doesn't mean to be debating or any of those different things. Just a confidence. A stability, an assurance that no matter what happens, no matter who's in power, no matter who's sitting in Washington, D.C., or China, or Russia, or anywhere else, that whatever circumstances come our way, we speak the word of the Lord with boldness. And how does that begin to manifest itself? How do our prayers continue? Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders to the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Our, our request is not for our certain way to win or a certain outcome, but that God would use his people and use his church and use his spirit and use his power for healing, for signs and wonders that would exalt Jesus Christ. That's the theological framework. That's How we respond, we gather together and we pray in such a way. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. What a beautiful picture for us to aspire to. And so when you look at Psalm 2, that to me is the application. You want a theological framework for understanding how to interpret world events Right, we, we once again remember that nothing will come against the Lord's anointed. Nothing overthrows the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. And so regardless of what happens, may we be found as those who speak his word with boldness, who become ambassadors of his healing, who become representatives of Jesus Christ, Lord of all. What we're reading here in Acts chapter 4 is the church being born. And keep reading. It gets harder. The threats become realities. The persecution becomes real. And the church remained faithful. Because what they knew and what you and I need to cling to each and every day is that this gospel, this good news will not fail. It will not faint. It will not yield. Nothing can stand against it because our hope is not just in some king or my king or your king. Our hope is in the king of kings. Let's go to him in prayer. Father in heaven, we love you and we thank you that you give us a king who sits upon your throne and gives us the assurances that we need to know how to interpret the times within which we find ourselves. God, thank you for a reminder that there is nothing we can't bring to you. So when we encounter the things that are unfolding in our country and beyond, that even those things are things that can be offered to you as prayer, offered to you as supplication. Thank you for giving us the example of the early church that shows us that when we see such things, we should gather together as a body of Christ and we should pray. God, let that be be our first and, and most important desire. Let it be the the thing that we rely upon more than anything else. And in that prayer and coming to you as the psalmist has come to you, as the early church has come to you, we would find this safety in our relationship with you that would stir us and equip us, that no matter what may befall us, we can be found faithful. And we can represent you, and you can use us to be instruments of your healing. God, Holy Spirit, move within this church and within your people that we would live accordingly and exalt you as King of kings, and Lord of Lords. We pray all these things in the strong and precious name of our Lord and Savior. Amen and amen.